Hello and welcome to another episode of Stars and Startups with me, Varun Pumari. If you're a first-time listener, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. All links can be found in show notes. On this episode, I speak with Birut Sheikh, who is a co-founder and CEO of popular freelancing work platform Elance. That is now Upwork. Birut went on to found Gupshop, a cloud messaging platform that has seen its share of twists and turns in the messaging and communication space since 2004. and now processes over 4 billion messages a month. Birut joined us from his home in California for this call. Let's say hi to Birut. Hi Birut, uh, welcome to the show. Um so happy to have you. We've uh, probably pushed this conversation uh, for a couple of weeks, but you know, I'm glad that we could get you on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me and you know, better late than never. So I'm looking f- uh, looking forward to this discussion. That's fantastic. Um so you spent a little bit of time uh at IIT and then you went to MIT and you studied computer science right and you did that as your degree um and then you went on to become a investment banker right after um so in the heyday in in the 90s you studied computer science and then you went on to be a banker how did that happen because i would imagine you did computer science because it is exciting and you wanted to do that um and then you wore the banker suit i think um so firstly yeah i mean i was you know fortunate to have a have an uh, exceptional academic record um, you know it was a silver medalist there you know mit also computer science and so on and then i was in my phd program at mit where i kind of suddenly you know realized i was obviously introspecting and so on but i realized that i didn't want to i didn't see an academic career for myself right which means becoming a professor and and things like that uh i figured just given my inclinations my interests and so on you know i like tinkering i i figured that the best way i can have impact was uh sort of through the world of business but not just traditional uh, business right the intersection of business and technology right so with iit and mit i was sort of i had as good a technical background as one could have uh but i was lacking that sort of business experience and you know a couple of options either go i did take some business courses at uh, mit while i was there mm-hmm. uh but then i said look let's just get some experience and also uh you'd be surprised but uh, there's there's not as much difference as you think between wall street and computer science right because uh, there was also the time where the world of finance was being transformed and they were hiring computer science majors math majors physics majors and so on because the modeling of securities and the stocks and bonds and all that is all mm-hmm. leveraging stochastic analysis and mathematical simulations and uh, and computer science uh, you know ideas and so on so it was sort of a natural fit i was uh, more on the trading side rather than the investment banking side but uh, so i was doing a lot of in the beginning i was modeling these securities and later i got to know it as well as anyone so i was also trading them so i became a sort of bond trader for a while but you know then at some point i got to the point where um uh, you know once the once everybody figures out how to do these valuations mm. it really becomes a buy low sell high kind of game and it's very right. lucrative and profitable but it wasn't mentally stimulating for me at least personally so so that's where i sort of left you know wall street and said okay yeah, you know i mean meanwhile while i was on wall street the internet happened netscape ipo and so on and we'll talk about that but that's where i sort of came back to this intersection of business and technology so i think that's the way to i see it were all you a good were you a good trader were you making uh, money hand over fist i i you know i think so i mean i for a little bit yes uh, but also you realize uh, you know a rising tide helps and uh, and a uh, and a waning tide hurts uh, so <laughs> around i think it was the 98 financial emerging markets currency crisis right and at that time i mean every once in a while right and then you had it in 2001 dot com crisis 2008 and so on right. so every once in a while these sort of external factors hit you and it doesn't matter right because anything you've modeled based on 100 year history you know those models don't work by definition when something outside that range happens right mm-hmm. so so i think yeah there was a phase where it was great and then when this happened yeah. i think just across the board you know anyway i was a junior trader so it's not like i had a lot at risk but but the firms were not doing well and mm-hmm. so on and so forth and meanwhile you know the internet was like changing the world so right. that's where 
Yeah, that's where I switched uh, or rather got back to my real calling. I think uh, this think of it as my business school experience on Wall Street. Yeah. So, so the height of the dot-com bubble, uh, well, just before it reached its peak, you decided to go and uh, start uh, probably an iconic brand, uh, Elance. Uh, and that was in 98? Yes. 97, 98? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right, right? So, in fact, uh, it's a great question, right? So, I was, I was on Wall Street, um, and Elance was sort of the culmination of basically sort of two or three ideas in my head, or rather my life experiences, right? One was um, coming from India, I knew that there were a lot of talented people all over the world, right? It's just that they may not be in New York, but but they are just as talented as anybody else, you know, and not just India, but, you know, maybe Brazil, Philippines, Turkey, or wherever. Uh, that was sort of one experience. The other experience was being, uh, having studied computer science, you know, we were at, I mean, at that time, things that we take for granted now were not commonly known, but, uh, you know, I realized that the internet was such a powerful tool for connecting people, right? And for the longest time, people didn't know what to do with this thing called the internet, but it really shortened distances. It connected strangers who didn't know each other but could work with each other, right? So that was the, my sort of computer science and internet experience helped with that. And then the third thing was my Wall Street experience helped me realize that you can basically create a marketplace for just about anything, okay? Right. Uh, not just for liquid things like stocks and bonds, but also for illiquid things uh, like derivatives or right. like services, software development services or logo design or graphic design. So you take those three things, put it together, and that gives you Elance, right? It became sort of an online marketplace for freelancers, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, connecting freelancers from around the world, uh, a, a liquid marketplace where you can get multiple bids and see what it is. And uh, really, you know, I think that was the culmination of that. So it was, I mean, we were already, and, and to put it in some, in some more context, right? So this is now 97, 98. At this time, Netscape had happened. Now, after Netscape, which sort of created the browser, which then led to the portal. So Yahoo had happened, which then led to, you know, meanwhile, e-commerce, Amazon had happened. eBay had happened already, right? These companies were growing. Hmm. And we said, okay, if these spaces are all taken, what is the next big opportunity? And and what we said was, look, all of e-commerce was focused on the commerce of goods. Mm -hmm. But what about the commerce of services? right? Uh, intangible, virtual, deliverable services, uh, the, that, that whole, and in fact, if you look at the global economy, service is a much bigger part of it than the goods economy. So we said, okay, that's, uh, you know, that's where we came up with, uh, with the idea of Elance. Yeah. But did you spend time with this segment uh, to say, okay, you know what, this is, there's a problem to be solved? You know, uh, I think I approached it, I think, more analytically than mm. sort of intuitively. And, you know, I think there's different ways of discovering or uh, figuring out business ideas and so on. Um, I think it was more, in fact, it's funny, like literally when we got started with Elance, the first experiment we did was, you know, I, I rounded up a bunch of, um, uh, you know, students at IIT Bombay, of course, because okay. I was there and it was the summer. And these guys were all technically supposed to be doing summer internships, but you know, they were bored out of their minds and said, look, you know, you can now do software coding or, you know, develop, build websites and so on and get paid for it uh, remotely through a website. And, you know, here's a list of projects, you can bid for it and you'll get paid for it. And first they didn't believe that that could happen. And, and like a few days later, they were like, you know, uh, just, you know, blown out of their minds saying, wow, we can just work remotely. So they actually made more money from Elance over their summer internship than their actual internship. Yeah. And it, it got going, right? So in, in some sense, like I said, yeah, I mean, we had an intuition for it. I know that people had this need. Um, the reality of it, right, is, is look, uh, in running Elance, we realized very quickly, it wasn't the supply side that you needed to know there's a problem because that supply side problem mm. exists and still exists. There are, there's far more supply than there is demand for. Right. There are millions and millions of freelancers and uh, and there's not enough work uh, through these online channels to offer to them. So really, to, for the success of this business depended on or was uh, gated by how much demand could you generate. Right. So the hard thing was actually finding businesses. And now this is, you know, again, in, in the late 90s, you're trying to explain people to do remote work. And yeah. they're like, well, how can I trust somebody who, you know, who I've never met? 
I, I like doing business face to face. How can I trust somebody who's in a different time zone? Like when will I even talk to them? You know, are they professional? What if they steal my money and run away? What if, you know, this and that, right? There were just a whole lot of just really mental blocks. And if you think about actually, you know, you look, think about the last six months, we have this forced global experiment in remote work uh, that suddenly everybody's realized, wow, remote work works. And I was, you know, I was just thinking to myself, while I don't wish a pandemic on anyone, but where was the pandemic when I needed it 20 years ago? Well, you know, when you brought up uh, payments and, you know, uh, as it is a marketplace, uh, there are two separate questions I have, right? One, payments that has to happen globally, right? Because people are around the world. And on the other hand, you also have to find people globally uh, to want to participate. Uh, you know, there was no uh, Facebook, there was no Instagram, there was, yeah, it was the Google wasn't exist, uh, didn't, didn't exist at that point either. So how do you solve the demand and supply problem? Because, you know, you have to create a, uh, that's what you require to create a functional marketplace. Exactly. No, I think that's the challenge with the two-sided marketplace, right? You need to, because if you have supply and don't have demand, then they got get bored and go away. If you have the demand, but not supply, then they're like, look, there's nobody to do business with. So you need both in balance at the same time. And that, that yeah. was particularly hard. But, uh, but look, this, the, the freelancer communities were very well organized. There were a lot of forums. They used to be what, what's called mailing lists and online forums mm. and distribution lists and mail serve and so on. Um, and NTP was the sole forum service and so on, right? So there were a lot mm. of these other alternative things. Uh, there's also a lot of word of mouth in these sort of developer communities and so on, okay. right? So um, that turned out... The hard part wasn't getting a lot of freelancers, but figuring out the quality of freelancers, right? Who's good, who's not. And right. also over time, see, it's not just the skill set, right? But it's the mindset, it's the professionalism, it's the responsiveness. It's sort of, you know, ultimately the job has to get done um, or, uh, or being kind of flexible because you're dealing with different people in different cultures where, you know, like, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow means a different thing in America than it does in India sometimes. Right now, of course, all these differences are blending, but <laughs> you know, in some parts of the world, it's just an indication like tomorrow could be day after or five days from now. Right. Versus right. here, if you say tomorrow, it means tomorrow. So I think uh, there were a lot of these issues to be, uh, to be figured. But like I said, I think the supply side was a, was a lot easier. The demand side uh, was a lot harder and okay. we had to, you know, I mean, just, explain, figure out uh, different things like saying you can lower your cost uh, or you can uh, get, but we didn't want to emphasize cost too much. We want to say, look, you can find an amazing, you know, uh, set of talent uh, mm -hmm. that may be hard to find in Silicon Valley sure. or in New York and so on. Right. So, so get, get access to better talent, faster and cheaper than mm -hmm. alternative things. Right. What we found were certain pockets took to it a lot easier, right. Young and new startups, or like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, I'm having a hard time hiring. Of course, why not, right? And and they're also tech savvy and can do it, right? While some others, traditional companies or traditional individuals, right? They would sort of struggle with it because sometimes, you know, I think in in remote work, I mean, the the owners, you need you need to be precise and well documented to a much greater extent than in the offline world because in offline you can go give feed, feedback back and forth. No, no, change this, change that, and so on. Yeah, it's harder to yeah. do that across time zones and so on. So anyway, so I think we had to, you know, just create a lot of tutorials, a lot of education, a lot of customer support, a lot of arbitration, mm. and so on to facilitate all of this. And also to build tools like, you know, an invoicing system, a milestone-based payment system, an escrow system, a, a global payment system so that both sides could trust, right? Because they're like, oh, wait a minute, they may not pay me, right? Or I'll pay, but they won't do the work, right? So now you need to build trust and all of this. So there were there were a whole bunch of operational issues that we had to figure out. Yeah. Was was that all methodical? Like, did you think about all of these, or you kind of figured it out on the way? Uh, you said, okay, you know what? No, I think uh, you know. So I think um, so. Me and my co-founders. I mean, we spent about uh, I think three to six months before we actually got started or raised the first okay. money sort of really fleshing it out, right? Because there's a lot of different things around, you know, it looks very obvious in hindsight, but 
a priori, I mean, figuring out these things is very hard. Like say, mm. what category should we have? And, you know, which categories do you think will work? Like in the beginning, for example, we said, okay, we'll do, you know, software and design and accounting and legal and translation and this and that. Well, accounting and legal never took off because I think yeah. it's just a different kind of, you want to see face to face, you know, your lawyer or your accountant. But software development, graphic design, tech-based services were just mm. fine or design-oriented things. So, so which services to do and what can, therefore, what kind of tools, because it varies by category as well. And what kind of go to market, because where you find those freelancers, right? How do you, how do you find accountants versus how do you find developers is very different mm. and so on, right? So, so, of course, there was a lot of planning up front. But look, any entrepreneur knows that no marketing plan survives first contact with the customer, right? So, so soon as you launch, you know, you look at the data and you're constantly you know, analyzing, evaluating, course correcting, adjusting, refining, learning, and so on. So what we did a lot, a lot of A-B testing, a lot of uh, conversations with customers, figuring out what works, what doesn't, and taking from there. So you were not the sole founder. You had uh, others who had worked with you. Um, how do you guys meet? How do you guys hash uh, out the idea? Right. Uh, oh, so great thing. Um, so one of my founders, uh, Srini, he was actually also a different IIT, but an IIT grad and was also on Wall Street. Okay. Uh, so initially we were just discussing investment ideas and so on. And then it sort of said, hey, you know, here's an opportunity. And the other was uh, Sanjay, my classmate from IIT Bombay, um, you know, who I'd done a ton of projects with. I knew very well, would trust my life with and so on. Right. So I think that made uh, it really, I mean, <laughs> it's funny how all these old relationships kind of revive and survive. And this formula has worked even at Gupshop. I mean, it was really just a lot of IT connections, alumni connections and so on. Okay. Same thing for funding, right? Our first round of financing was just a lot of uh, um, just friends uh, and connection because all of us, you know, you come here as immigrants, you don't have family yeah. here, you don't have a lot of money, but you have these relationships and that's a, a gold mine and that's what we leveraged. Yeah. So the first round was an angel round, uh, just friends and family. Uh, kind of scenario yeah exactly mostly friends no family but yeah <laughs> yeah I mean what we had was you know so what you have is you have alumni that are further ahead of you in their careers if they've had some exits if they have had some startups or they're working at an investment bank or something you know they have a little bit of money so they'll invest a little bit but more importantly so we had like four or five friends like that but each of them also brought in another three or four friends each sure. right from their respective circles. So between Wall Street, where we had some connections and Silicon Valley, we were able to get it funded and get yeah. going. Yeah. The, the, the markets are of course surging that time. So chances were they could liquidate some stock <laughs> and funnel it into yeah, other interesting things. You're uh, right. You're right. I mean, I think uh, the, it was a boom time, certainly. It was an internet yeah. frenzy. Uh, a lot of companies were going public and a lot of you know, uh, valuations were were skyrocketing and so on. So it was a it was a great time. It was somewhat irrational. I mean, a lot of money wasted, a lot of money lost. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it was a game changer, right? I mean, what what survives today would not have happened were it not for that. Was that the reason why uh, the the merger happened with uh, Odesk as well, uh, or, or was there a different reason? No, no. So that's actually much later, right? So, so let me just sort of fill in some gaps, right? Mm. So in 98, uh, we, we started Elance and that, that was in New York actually. And, you know, uh, the New York equivalent of a Silicon Valley garage was like a two bed apartment in an apartment complex. Uh, and we grew to about 20 people that in the daytime would come to the office and then in the evening would go and our neighbors would wonder like, what the hell is going on here, right? Uh, but uh, I think that was great. And then a year later, uh, we actually moved to Silicon Valley, lock, stock and barrel, all 20 people from New York to San Francisco, right? Uh, because we got funded by Kleiner Perkins, uh, okay. raised, right? So we, we did a big round, maybe a $12 million round then, then came to Silicon Valley, started growing. Mm -hmm grew up to a couple of hundred people. Uh, and that was in 2000, we did another round, like $50 million and so on. Luckily, just before the, the stock market collapsed. Mm. And then when it collapsed, it was uh, a really stressful time because all these plans that you have go out the window, right? Because your customers don't have money to spend and 
you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Will you ever get another funding round and so on? So if you have huge marketing plans, you got to, you can't spend it all. You got to be careful. There's no point marketing because your customers are not spending anyway. Right. So, so I think, uh, in fact, we, we pivoted from this sort of B2C like model to a, a B2B, a business model. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we did that for a while. Um, and after some time sort of gave up on it. Right. So now, I was at the company from 98 to about 2004 or five, something like that. Um, you know, because once it became more enterprise focused, I was not less interested. Um, but the strange thing was soon after I left, we again refocused on the original business model, right? So that's been very resilient. And today it's still the same thing. Uh, the Odesk merger happened much, much, much later. It was in 2014, actually, right? Okay. So it was about 15 years after Elance had been around. And Odesk itself was founded in like, I don't know off the top of my head, maybe 2005 or six or something like that. So about five, six years after Elance had been founded, right? Now we had focused on what you call fixed price projects. They had focused yeah. on sort of hourly time and material based stuff, yeah. right? So, but, but there was a huge need for outsourcing. So different models were all growing. Um, you know, I was, even after I'd left, I was still on the board of the company and then so like I said, 15 years later, Elans and Odesk merged. It was rebranded to Upwork. And, and then in 2018, Upwork went public and it's now a publicly listed stock um, out there. So yeah, long, long story. It was a, you know, and it's kind of funny. A lot of people hear about it then and thought, yeah. you know, it was like an overnight success that was 20 years in the making. It's unfortunate that people don't see that journey, right? Um, I'm sure there's enough ups and downs, but you know, you kind of, um, you left in 2005 to start Gupshop. Um, was, was that like a decision that, you know, uh, you wanted to move on and do something different and, and what happened to Elance at that point? Cause you were the CEO uh, of Elance. Well, no, actually we had, um, we had hired a look when we focused on the enterprise side of the business, it made sense to have somebody who had enterprise sales experience because it's a very different kind of thing, right? Yeah, so yeah. a little bit before I'd left, we had hired an enterprise uh, style CEO. And, um, you know, I was okay with that. I mean, I think you, you got to ultimately do what's right for the company. So, right. so you know, when I left, I, I think for me, it's always about, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I'm a tinkerer. Mm -hmm. I'm always ideating, thinking about problems and solutions and so on. Some, of course, you do. Some others you invest in or advise and so on, right? So I do a lot of that. Uh, but, but yeah, so I think, uh, you know, once it sort of focused a little more on the enterprise side and I didn't, at, at that stage in my life, I didn't have that sort of expertise. Uh, it didn't make sense for me to hang around. So I said, okay, well, let's find the next thing to to do and and that's that's how we started Gupshop, which again, like I said, you know, sort of more alumni, IT alum connections. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a guy called Rakesh Mathur, uh, who's himself a very accomplished serial entrepreneur uh, here, mm -hmm. and he had invested in Elance. He had founded Jungli before that himself. Um, okay. So anyway, he had invested in in Elance. So he and I sort of you know got started with Gupshop. Uh, also, one of my classmates, Vishy, joined us very early and. Um, mm -hmm. Then the Gupshup story began, yeah, and even that had quite a few twists and turns. Yeah. <laughs> What's your take on, uh, you know, we touched on future of work and you know how Upwork uh, has kind of enabled and Fiverr is the other big uh, giant in this space uh, has enabled this whole remote working future of work. And now there's also access, right? Uh, people anywhere with just a mobile phone could access uh, work uh, and and give that. Um, how you seen this evolve? You said that you know enterprises were where you sold uh, majorly, but now it seems like a lot of the businesses that that use this kind of a service are typically SMEs, small businesses that can't afford to have a full time employee, and they're willing to break up their uh, jobs into smaller pieces, right, and give it to different folks, and then kind of do the project management management themselves. No, so I think so. A lot of what I described earlier was, look, it was in the late 90s and early 2000s, right? I mean, the yeah. world has changed a lot since then yeah. and even more so more recently, right? Because look, if, if companies go to full work from home model, now it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, where you're located. It yeah. doesn't matter anymore whether you're full time or part time because 
you could be full-time for a project, accomplish it, and then move on to different things. Um, you know, employees get a lot more flexibility. They could be working for three companies on a project basis as opposed to one. Employers get a lot more flexibility because now you can get a talent pool, you know, a global talent pool and so on, different price points. Uh, so I think it's no longer SME and uh, sort of small projects. Uh, in fact, a lot of growth for Upwork itself is coming from large enterprises uh, and because large enterprises themselves are looking for this flexibility, right? And they're realizing that businesses have to be nimble so that they can adapt to these kind of dramatic circumstances, right? So, so I think uh, a freelance model gives that opportunity to both employers and freelancers to, uh, you know, to pick and choose what they like to do, what they want to do, to live where they want, to get paid what they want, and, and so on. So I think it's just great. In fact, it's barely, you know, in spite of how big these companies have become, they barely scratched the surface. Uh, you know, I think they talk about it's like an opportunity that's, uh, I don't know, tens, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars worth because you look at the entire staffing industry and you look at the entire outsourcing industry and you look at, you know, um, I mean, all of that is yet waiting to be disrupted, right? And, and it's inevitable. I think it's going to happen and it's going to be models like, you know, now obviously you need to build more layers. It can't just be an open marketplace where you put out a project in the public and so on. Sometimes you want it to be private. Sometimes you want, you know, a verified uh, freelancer or you can ensure security and quality and things like that. So there's a a lot of things yet to be built and that is being built yeah we've already the world has changed so much in the last three six months remote work adoption has happened in six months yeah i mean like you uh, i think that industry like you know uh, has seen so many up and down cycles right in like two decades <laughs> it's, uh, yeah i mean it's a, you know it tells you sometimes if you're ahead of your time it can be challenging i mean that's look that's the hazard occupational hazard of, of this of entrepreneurship, right? Because you have a vision of the world that the world has to change, but you know, the real world has a lot of inertia for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, good or bad, it, that's just the case. And sometimes uh, you don't know, you know, how fast or how quickly some of these things will change. I mean, the hardest thing as an entrepreneur is patience. Right. Sometimes you just have to be patient. You have to wait for the market to come to you. Um, the, the, the world has a mind of its own. Customers have a mind of their own. So Upwork is, you know, fantastic. I mean, it's sort of right time, right place now. Uh, yeah. But of course, for the first tw- most of the first 20 years, it was like a really difficult thing to convince what today we now take for granted. Right. Well, t- um, talking about taking for granted, I mean, uh, I, I want to get into the Gupshap story a little bit. Um, we're talking about messaging and Gupshap's core uh, business proposition is messaging and communication, um, right? Do you want to give a quick uh, primer on Gupshap? What do you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely, right? So um, Gupshap is what's called a cloud messaging platform, right? Um, enterprises and businesses that need to send, that need to communicate with their consumers. So let's take a bank or a e-commerce company or a retailer or an airline and so on, you know, they need to send information to their customers either because they're required to by, by regulations or because customers expect it, right? So a bank will say, okay, your check is cleared or your credit, you, you know, you spend hundred rupees at Starbucks on your credit card or an e-commerce company say your package is arriving tomorrow. Here's the status or here's the order confirmation or when you book an airline or a hotel or whatever, right? There's many, many use cases. And when they need to send these messages, uh, they connect to Gupshop. We provide a single API, right? A cloud hosted API. And then in turn, when they send us a message, we deliver the message to the device, right? Uh, Now, traditionally, uh, a lot of these, uh, the bulk of these messages would be delivered through mobile operators, um, you know, as a traditional SMS. But now there are many more channels that are opening up as well, right? WhatsApp is one example. Uh, There is RCS coming up. uh, And then even Gupshap is again pioneering or innovating IP messaging, which is a newer channel. And the benefit of these new channels is, uh, you know, the messages can be a lot richer. Um, If you think about SMS, it's just plain text. It's restricted to 160 characters. You cannot reply to an enterprise SMS but with all these IP-based messages, 
it could have images, it could have rich media, it could have cards and buttons. You can click on the button and interact with it. You can reply to it and have a conversation, which means now you can talk to customer support or talk to chatbots, automated chatbots, uh, and and so on. So I think you know we are basically a messaging platform, but but the world of messaging itself is is uh, transforming from traditional SMS-based messaging to IP-based messaging, and we are driving that transformation. So it's a very exciting time, a lot of opportunity to innovate, and I think it's going to have huge impact. I mean, I'll. Mm-hmm. I'll talk more about it, but this is going to transform the way businesses and consumers talk to each other. Speaking of WhatsApp and, and messaging and rich, rich communication, um, WhatsApp for business, of course, has uh, really taken off uh, on the SME side, where if you're, you're having a small shop, you're setting up uh, your WhatsApp account, and then you, know, you can actually communicate. And I think it's uh, actually increased uh, business for a lot of small folks. Uh, I heard a VC saying WhatsApp, or rather messaging, was the original super app. Um, did you did you ever feel like uh, right after, of course, Elads, that should have been the calling, like a WhatsApp-like service? I, I think there were quite a few at that point. Well, yeah. So I think um, you're right. I mean, look, we focused on. Um, uh, you know, we focused on the India market and at that time it was all feature phone heavy. So we focused yeah. on SMS. In fact, initially we did try and succeed with a consumer based SMS service, just like Twitter, which became quite huge. It had like 70 million users in India at a time in around 2010 at a time where Twitter or Facebook had barely a million users each. Right. So we were sort of the first and the largest social network in India. Uh, but the cost of the SMS uh, really killed us because as more and more users started using it, we had to subsidize all of it and it got expensive. So I think, look, some of these things, even entrepreneurs or founders, I mean, you know, they'll say we didn't know how big it could become or would become and so on, right? There was a time where BBM or BlackBerry messaging was huge, you know, and then Nokia had some things and then of course WhatsApp came about. There were many other versions as well. And uh, I think, meanwhile, we were focused at that time, actually, again, we switched to the enterprise side. So we were already focused on the enterprise side, right? So it's, sort of, it's, it's hard for a company to do multiple things. You kind of have to place a bet and kind of go with it. And, uh, you know, when things explode, a lot of things are happening all around you and you can't sort of, it can screw with your mind if you're always worried about what someone else is doing. I think you just focus on what you're doing and, you know, be good at it and scale it up. And I think we are, you know, we're in a great place. I mean, we're not, um, you know, we've scaled our business up to quite an extent. We are, you know, uh, over 100 million in revenues uh, annually. And we've, you know, business, uh, we have some of the top enterprises in India and international as well, using us very extensively. And we are pioneering a lot of new things, right? So you made an interesting point. Uh, uh, You know, messaging is indeed uh, the new the new platform or the new operating system, if you will, right? It's a it's a it's no longer just a tool for person to person communication, but it's a it's a platform like an OS where mm. on which a lot of different applications are going to be built, right? So you can do uh, and the best example of this, by the way, is WeChat uh, in China, yeah. right? It's I'm going to say WeChat and QQ, right? Uh, just massive. Exactly. No, but uh, even QQ doesn't have all the services that we, it's owned by the same company, but WeChat in particular went way beyond messaging, right? Because with WeChat, you can do, uh, you know, you can do banking, you can do e-commerce, you can, you know, do payments, you can do transactions. And you can do laundry. Yeah, you can do laundry or, you know, there's there's some amazing videos on the set of things you can do. You can play Mm -hmm. games and you can, uh, you know, they have mini programs and mini apps and uh, games and so on as well, right? So it's sort of a full-on app and that shows you the real power of messaging because what's happening, right? I, I think, again, this is a bigger a trend or a bigger idea, but if you step back, right? See, uh, when, um, uh, you know, in the in the big screen model, right? We Initially, we had the desktop application model. Yeah, when, when the web came about, right? We, suddenly, everybody moved to sort of the server-side development model saying, you know, it doesn't make sense to have downloadable client apps. Users don't like to download and developers, it's find it expensive. You have to change it, download it, et cetera. Upgrades are difficult and so on. So it's easier to do server-side software. It comes into your browser and you just use it. 
Well, when we went to the small screen, because mobile networks were very slow in the beginning when Steve Jobs came about, guess what? He went back to this downloadable model, the app ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? But the app ecosystem doesn't work very well, meaning there are millions of apps, but yeah. most of us have no more than 100, 150 apps at most, right? right. So what about all those other apps that, you know, we do interact with these brands, but how many restaurant apps do you have? How many airline apps do you have? How many mall apps do you have, right? I mean, all of us will have our top 10 or top 20 apps, you know, maybe a Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, Uber, Ola or something, right? But you don't have a lot of different things. So I think the app ecosystem works for sort of the top 100, like the popular businesses, but the long tail uh, really doesn't have a good way to engage with them. And that's where messaging comes in. Because with messaging, you don't need to download anything. You're just exchanging messages. You're transacting with that restaurant. You look up the menu, place the order, make a payment, and then you're gone and it disappears from your device. No download, no setup, no configuration, nothing, yeah. right? So, so I think uh, this is where there's going to be a huge paradigm shift, right? As significant as the evolution of the web on the big screen, this is going to be now evolution of web through messaging on the small screen. You know, when you talk about WeChat, uh, you know, of course, the, the Americans have, uh, well, almost everybody has an iPhone and iMessage uh, has started to now think about doing other things on it. But I still think they want to keep the messaging sacrosanct. Right? They have not really improved on that. Uh, whereas uh, Android, on the other hand, uh, you know, has basically allowed WhatsApp to flourish. And, and, you know, but WhatsApp hasn't gone beyond messaging, at least in India, they even tried payments, but uh, it has been stuck stuck in a lot of regulatory challenges. Um, do you see something else filling the gap? Because I, I know that uh, Android launched uh, RCS, which they've been trying to, uh, well, Google's been trying to push through for a couple of years now. And uh, you're saying that SMS is dead, let's move this new technology and OEMs to adopt RCS. Um, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I, I you know, there's a huge opportunity to do better, richer experiences. Uh, of course, RCS is going to come. Um, you know, we've been waiting for it for years and I don't know how much longer it'll take, but it's happening in bits and pieces. You know, the way it's designed, you need the operators to do a lot of CapEx and you need the handset manufacturers to update the device software. And on top of it, there's a lot of fragmentation around protocols and standards. So the interoperability is not uh, clean and simple, right? So I think that's been a little frustrating. Um, WhatsApp is going to take, fill some of the gap, not all of it, uh, because WhatsApp is also very clear. They don't want all business messages. They really just want high value, high affinity messages. That is not, you know, that is all user driven, user opt in, and so on and so forth, right? Mm. So WhatsApp is one part of the solution. RCS, when it comes, will be a small part of the solution as well. Um, I think Google has something else called business messaging. That's going to be another piece of the solution as well. Yeah. Uh, but I think we are also, Gupshup is introducing something we call, uh, you know, Gupshup IP messaging or GIP for short. Okay. Uh, so this GIP messaging is also, I think, going to, uh, you know, what it really does is takes SMS to the next level where you can take SMS and enable rich media enable cards, buttons, chatbots, automations, you know, AI enabled services and so on right inside SMS itself. And, and ultimately, you know, we are going from a single channel SMS only model to this multi-channel rich messaging model with WhatsApp, RCS, you know, Gupshap IP, um, and maybe Google business messages, sort of mul- multiple additional things. Yeah. How, how does how does Gupshap IP work then? Because you just replace your SMS. A lot of apps uh, now, right? Microsoft has their messaging, Messenger. Sure. Uh, everybody wants to own your Messenger. Uh, Truecaller wants to give access, wants to make the default <laughs> Messenger on my phone. Uh, how does how does this part take in, in my phone? So, so a great question. I think we've done um, sort of uh, two or three uh, interesting things that work very well. So one is, of course, we have an app right? And that users can download. But in general, you know, apart from like really tech savvy users, very few people actually modify their default messaging app, right? I mean, just uh, empirically that that doesn't work, right? So for the people who do, we have that. Um, Then in addition to that, we've done partnerships with handset manufacturers, 
to embed some smart software inside their default messaging apps. Okay. So it's a little bit like, like you mentioned iPhone and iPhone, it comes with iMessage, right? It's, it's just part of the default SMS app where of course you get your SMSs, but you also get these rich messages in there. Same thing here where we've done this for Android devices. Uh, and that's already out there on about 100, 120 million devices where we can send these rich messages to, to the device because, because it has a smart client there. And then, um, you know, now for other handsets where we don't have these deals, we are leveraging uh, services like, uh, you know, we've, we've created a, a sort of a chat widget that users can link through, click through from the SMS. So it's one extra click. But then the whole thing is sort of a very rich conversational messaging app that they don't have to download, right? So it sort of, it just runs um, in the browser, but it looks like a messaging app and it's very brilliant, right? But, uh, but these are some of the details. The reality of it is, um, uh, think of it as a combination of all three. Um, and when enterprises send messages, they don't have to worry because which user will get which device. We automatically translate the templates and deliver it in the best possible way to these devices. Isn't messaging driven by the functionality and, and uh, ease of use for the customer and not enterprise? Because, you know, for me, I always evaluate my phone, like, uh, you know, I have a OnePlus and my uh, SMS uh, messenger now has some uh, smart way that it just bundles up messages. Uh, you know, still uh, the Microsoft product, which is Messenger, was so much cooler because it gave me like my financial history was able to bifurcate a lot of things it kept away spam it wouldn't show me the spam folder right which was great because i could set up that uh, spam filter and uh, basically meant that only if i have any messages that are relevant to me i'll even get a notification and it also helped me manage my otps really well right like because today you get 100 otps a day um so I'm just curious, like how that basically plays out in the messaging world, right? Uh, because for me, messenger message SMS app is dead. The SMS app is dead, um, you know, because we've moved on to so many other things on the phone. Also, firstly, um, that advanced technology you described on OnePlus device is built by guess who? Gupshop. Okay. Ah. Okay. Uh, so we've embedded uh, AI in the device to do message classification, to do message visualization. You may have noticed some cards and lay- structured layouts uh, that highlights key entities from the message and displays it correctly. Uh, there are uh, additional things coming as well, right? I think in there. Now, um, you know, the, the default messaging app has a lot of uh, very high standards for stability and so on. So it the development moves a little slower. We have a huge set of things in the pipeline, but it's not sort of fully there, right? So a lot of that, exactly what I was talking about earlier, these are, you know, OnePlus is one of our partners and there are a few other brands as well. So we are making the messaging app a lot smarter. Now, the point is not, you know, look, there are different kind. you know, when you talk about the smartphone market, I mean, it's a very diverse customer base. There's lots of different preferences, right? It's really... Each user may have their own preferences, but when we look at it from the other side, where they're saying, okay, there's like, what, three, four, 500 million users. I mean, there's different segments who have different preferences. So you can't, no one solution will fit everybody, right? So that's not even the point, and we're not even trying to do that. But what happens is, you know, you put it in the default messaging app that covers sort of the vast majority of users. For people who have special preferences, right? Some people want history, but some others say, you know what, I, I, you know, I have my history in the banking app. I don't want it here because now, you know, I, how do I maintain consistency? What if this is off and so on? Because your SMS inbox doesn't have all the transactions. It only has the ones they notify you of. But there may be some other transactions that are only, only your bank knows, right? So there's a, there's a lot of things around accuracy and consistency and so on. It's a, it's a much more complex problem. But what we are trying to do is um, whatever channel businesses want to communicate with consumers on, right? We want to make it uh, richer and more intelligent with automation and, and so on, right? And uh, the point is today, most messages that come in are sort of just dumb one-way notifications, right? It tells you, oh, something happened. It's like somebody tells you, oh, there's a fire. It's like, yeah, but if there's a fire, you need to do like two, three or four things, right? Meaning you get a credit card notification, maybe you want to report fraud, like I didn't do this. Or you get a package you know, you're an order confirmation and then you want to see package tracking status, right? Maybe today or tomorrow. 
or you get a booking and then you want to upgrade your flight. There's always a next action, right? So, so the key insight really is every message is the starting point for a, every one-way message is the starting point for a two-way conversation, right? So, so that's what we are enabling. Now, the challenge is on what channel do you do that, right? And the reason why I agree with you, the reason why many people think uh, the messaging app is dead is because it's so limited. It's limited. It's one way. It can be spammy sometimes. You can't act on it. You can't respond to it. It's just very, very restricted. But on the other hand, if we made it richer and intelligent and structured and organized and so on, right? And I, I like to describe it that, you know, Gapshap is sort of taking the mess out of messaging. Um, you know, if we can make it uh, sort of cleaner, simpler, easier to use, more intelligent. Imagine if your bill pay, every bill pay, if it's within a certain limit, gets automatically paid. Now you're never going to miss a payment. You're not going to have that penalty, for example, and so on, right? So this, these are the kind of things, intelligent things that we are putting in. What's a little more uh, frustrating for someone like me is that I also have to manage multiple apps, right? Like you always wish that it was just one one thing and, uh, uh, and, and you know, like the messages and the OTPs today, like, uh, I don't know, uh, the, I think the try regulation changes that you, if you have your single, um, you know, uh, I guess code, then all the communication comes from that one specific number uh, or five digit SMS code. Uh, then it basically groups all the communication from a specific entity into one, you know, Correct. message box, right? Today, it can come from hundreds of different messaging, uh, like, you know, it comes from different numbers, come from you know, different things, which is extremely like frustrating in itself. So I see where you're going. Yeah, so it's, I agree, it's broken. It's broken in many different ways. Uh, it's broken for the consumer. It's also broken for the enterprise, right? Enterprises don't want to, because enterprises know, for example, that there are certain users who love getting offers and certain users who don't, right? Uh, but if they don't have a good mechanism for this two-way communication and control, they can't offer that control to the user to say, okay, look, you, you like deals, we'll send you deals, but somebody else doesn't want them. Okay, no problem, right? So uh, I think there's a problem on, on both sides. And um, ultimately, look, the, the channel, the, there's multiple things, right? The, any messaging system has sort of the, you know, there's the server, the sending side. There's the client, the receiving side, and then the channel in between, right? And all three have to become richer and more intelligent, right? Each of those pieces. So, so on the client side, like I said, we've done these deals with uh, handset manufacturers to make the clients richer and more intelligent because there's some things, again, for data security and privacy can only be done on the device, right? So any AI that we do, that data doesn't come to the server. It's just on the device, right? Yeah. And then on the server side, you have to have a chatbot platform and APIs and integrations to link it to whatever you want. And then the channel in the middle has to enable these rich formats, right? It has to enable rich media and, uh, you know, cards and buttons and chatbots and, and things like that. So uh, it's a lot of work because it's a very, you know, very large and uh, sort of uh, fragmented ecosystem. But as it happens, I think it'll be a real game changer. And, you know, I think uh, we, we are right in the middle of it. And, you know, we are, we are pioneering a lot of new solutions that I think, like I said, we're going to be rolling out very quickly. So hopefully we can address most of your issues, if not all, in the next few weeks and months. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I, I've always had this question. Um, you, you mentioned that we get a ton of, uh, you know, promotional codes and, and other, uh, uh, you know, bits of messages in our, in our, on our phones, are they actually uh, useful? Do, do any of these enterprises see value there? Uh, what are the conversion rates normally uh, for these kind of promos? So, yeah, it's low. And by the way, that's also the reason why it's declined. Um, see, I'll say the following about promotional messages, right? It's sort of one person's deal is another person's spam right uh, a lot of messages it's it's a matter of context if you're interested if you if you're looking for something or you're at a mall and saying okay let's see if there's a mcdonald's deal before i go into the thing i mean you'd love it right it's just that if you got that same message while you're in the middle of a meeting it feels like spam right so um, but but all of us i mean nobody misses out on a coupon or a deal when you want it 
It's just that most businesses don't know when the customer wants it. So they kind of just do spray and pray, uh, which leads to the problem, right? So, so this, this, it's, a, it's a false uh, choice. It's a false dichotomy of saying, okay, either, you know, you get, you know, you, you send a lot of offers or send no offers at all. Right. Um, and, and I think so. So I think right now we're dealing with very, very blunt approaches to say, OK, let's shut down all promotional because it's annoying. It's like, yeah, but then some people miss out on it and some new business models. I mean, look, the advertising business model is the foundation of the Internet. Right. Yep. So um, done intelligently, just that Google and Facebook do it a lot smarter than everybody else. So so the promotional thing is all about context. And I think that's also what we are trying to do, which is, you know, and, and context comes from communication, engagement, mm-hmm. data, and, and so on. And of course, there's some privacy issues you have to be careful about. But if you enable that, right? So, so, so the old way of advertising where you just do an SMS promotional campaign, mm-hmm. yes, it's expensive and it's also low conversion rates and it doesn't happen very much. Today, like 90 plus percent of the industry is all tra- what's called transactional, not promotional. Right. Okay. Right. But going forward, I think we'll be able to sort of thread that needle of saying, okay, people who want those offers can get it um, right. for as long as they want it, right? Let's say you're you're shopping for a new smartphone, then you get all these deals maybe for a week or a month, and then you stop getting them because you can switch it on and off as needed. Or you're standing at a mall and say, show me offers in this location right now, and you get it, you know, for the next half an hour, and then you're done. So uh, I think that's the way to sort of solve that problem again with yeah. with context, it can be very productive. Fantastic. Uh, hey, Biru, this has been a, a great chat. Are you guys hiring right now? Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, are we looking like for? I said, we are we're driving a lot of innovation. It's a very exciting space. Um, you know, I think it's a global business. It's, it's a global. Yeah. So we're expanding uh, globally as well. I mean, I like to you know, there aren't too many businesses, innovative businesses, you know, born in India that are bringing technology to the rest of the world. And we'd like to be one of those, right? So, uh, of course, there are a lot of innovative businesses succeeding in India, but not sort of in the global tech ecosystem. And I think we are, you know, we are driving, we're trying to, uh, we're doing that successfully. And I think we're looking to hire uh, good people in a lot of areas. There's a lot of growth and so on. And uh, yeah, so we are... uh, we're a very large scale company, high growth company, and uh, um, a lot of uh, good things in the in the roadmap as well. So I leave uh, the link to the careers page uh, wherever I put the post the podcast. Uh, so, okay. uh, uh, well, um, you know, uh, appreciate it. This a uh, lot of exciting stuff happening at Gumshop. Uh, wish you guys uh, best of luck, uh, and you know, uh, hope to catch up with you at some point in the future. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Really enjoyed the discussion. I think it was uh, far more, uh, you know, thoughtful and deliberate and, you know, insightful discussion than I expected. So really appreciate you doing this. 